0: Parenthood is a time of so much change for you and your baby. A little reliable information can go a long way towards making this new life a good life. I'm Jessica Rolfe, and this is My New Life, a Love Every podcast. While the science aligns on what's healthy for a baby's brain development, When it comes to how to care for our babies, there's a seemingly endless supply of competing perspectives. Parents are swimming in advice on sleep, feeding, and parenting philosophies. In this season of the podcast, we aim to provide a variety of curated perspectives so you can make informed choices for your family. Natural. It's a loaded word when it comes to parenting on my own parenting journey, I've gone deep into that world. And while it feels good to make choices that stem from nature, following an all natural course and all the rules that come with it can lead to stress. There are a lot of conflicting messages out there when it comes to what is healthy for our children. Is it okay to delay vaccines? Is it okay to use formula? What happens if your birth doesn't go as planned? Joining us today with the kind of straightforward medical advice that has made her podcast, Peds Doc Talk, hugely popular, is pediatrician, Dr. Mona Amin. Thank you so much for being with us on the show, Dr. Mona.
1: Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here.
0: So it seems like getting vaccinated is on everybody's radar these days. But what is your advice when it comes to babies? I had actually ended up following an alternate vaccine schedule with my first two children and switched pediatricians. And he was, my new pediatrician was very insistent on us getting back on track and back on schedule. I really would love to hear from you. We trust you so much. Tell us what the real deal is with vaccines and alternate schedules.
1: Well, we know that vaccines are a hot topic issue now, especially in this pandemic with adults and the COVID vaccine. Uh, this is public health in front of our eyes right now, you know, showing the power of vaccination. As peds, we see and talk about vaccine hesitancy all the time. Even before a pandemic, we were talking about vaccines with all of our families, educating parents on what to do, what is best, what is the best outcome for a child. Now, a few things I want to remind our listeners is that vaccines are created for illnesses that have potential to cause death or harm. So you're not going to create a vaccine for a child if the data is not showing that that illness is going to be detrimental to that child. So we look at all the illnesses that children get. And if a children can potentially die from that illness or if they can be left with permanent damage, such as hearing loss, neurological devastation, etc., cetera, then we're going to create a vaccine for that illness. Examples include meningitis, measles, chicken pox, as examples of what we see in terms of long-term complications. So I talk about chickenpox a lot. Many people think, oh, well, we had chickenpox when we were younger. It's perfectly fine if my kids get it. But the reality is that chickenpox in some cases can cause hearing loss and it can also um, lead to shingles later in life. So if a child gets the chickenpox vaccine earlier, um, at one year, and again, at, you know, four years old, they won't get Chicken pox they won't get shingles and they won't have that risk of hearing loss so we have to understand why vaccines are created and I, I like to start with that because I like to re reaffirm everyone's belief that we are not creating it for every illness. The example is hand, foot and mouth. Every kid gets hand, foot and mouth at some point in their childhood, perhaps, but there won't ever be a vaccine for hand, foot and mouth because we don't see children die from hand, foot and mouth. We don't see long-term complications. So we are protecting kids from the things that can cause harm. Now, the other component is that vaccines are heavily researched so it's one of the most trusted thing in modern medicine and it's constantly monitored and I'm using the example of covid again you know we created the vaccine was created they studied it in a group of people, and then every few months they're looking at data. They're looking at data. The same thing is happening for our children's vaccines. Every single vaccine our kids get is heavily monitored. Uh, Parents can submit reports, but also physicians submit reports that, hey, we saw a child have this outcome, this is happening, and this is reported by parents and doctors across the country. So every three months, there is a board that looks at the safety of a vaccine that's on a market. So that's one thing I wanna reassure parents about. Now, in terms of your question on, is it necessary? Well, what about schedules? Do we need to follow the schedule? The vaccine schedules exist because that's what was studied in terms of the most effective way to build immunity in that child for those vaccines. So spacing is what was studied. It doesn't mean that if you space That you are going to automatically be lower immunity for that illness. But we don't know, we don't study spaced vaccines, right? The only schedule that is studied is the schedule that we have. And so we don't want to take that risk. Just say, we say that you should get the DTaP at the two month and four month, but the family comes two months and then they come again at eight months. We're subjecting that child to a spacing that may potentially cause them to get DTaP. Let's uh, Let's use a diphtheria or tetanus or pertussis in this example. They could be exposed to pertussis and then they may not be protected because they didn't get the vaccine boosters at the time That was recommended. So when you are thinking about spacing, um, I think it's a really important conversation to have with your child's clinician on what they feel comfortable with. I do have some families that space. I will say ninety-five percent of my my population is on schedule, but a five percent of my population wants to do one at a time. They want to come back every couple weeks. To me, I look at okay, as long as we're not going months, months apart between these vaccines, then we're probably going to be okay. But it is a probability. So when you're thinking about these decisions, it's important to know, well, do I want to go on schedule? Do I want to space it out? But the most important thing is, do I want to vaccinate my kids? And as a pediatrician and mother, I do support vaccination. I think it the benefits outweigh the risk because we want to protect the children against those illnesses.
0: That's so helpful. I remember doing the you know, bringing my baby back a week later, or mm-hmm. you know, at most two weeks later, and then realizing that so many of the vaccines were bundled anyway. It can be very complex if you decide to do an alternate schedule, but it can be done, and it's really helpful to have this data from you. What do you say to parents who are concerned that there is a link between autism and vaccinations?
1: So there are. Many research studies, the Healthy Children website, this is the website from the AAP, they actually have a section that lists all of the studies that show that vaccines are not related to autism. One study that was done when this all started back in like late 1999, um, early 2000s by Andrew Wakefield, that was um, withdrawn from that paper. He he actually was not forthcoming about his measures in that study. He was stripped of his medical license, but that whole movement caused a lot of the hesitancy with autism and vaccines. But we know based on every research study that keeps coming out, larger populations internationally, that we are seeing that still, what we know is that autism is a genetic component and there is no correlation or causation with autism.
0: And then for those teeny tiny babies, when you bring them into their first appointments. They're just so little. And then you're giving them, it seems like you're giving them like lots of vaccinations, right? Like the vaccination schedule starts when they're very young.
1: I want to remind you that the studies that we do for that is the youngest age, again, for the two month visit, when we give those regular vaccines, these given earlier than that, this is all done on studies and monitored, like I said earlier, right? So this is all things that have been monitored and studied to show safety and efficacy for that child. So parents commonly say, well, it seems like so much for their immune system that their you know their immune system will be in overdrive. There is nothing to show us that a baby's immune system would be in overdrive. How I know this is that I see A lot of the vaccine hesitancy comments will be, oh, well, they're more prone to getting illnesses. I take care of thousands of children who get vaccinated every day. It does not mean that these children are having awful health outcomes because of vaccination. You know, some people say, oh, if you get vaccines, then you're more likely to get sick all the time and allergies. Nope, I don't see it at all. And I look at the data, but I also look at what I see in my office, right? Healthy kids come with vaccination. So if I started to see at any point or if any of my colleagues started to see at any point that, huh, are we seeing correlations or causations with vaccines and certain illnesses? We would sound an alarm. This is not something that we hide from anyone, right? So when parents are coming into the office and your pediatrician saying, we trust this, we want it, it comes from our own integrity. Every time the parent comes back, I ask, well, how did you do with the vaccines? Every single parent gets asked that question. We talk about everything. We make sure everything's going good. And I've been doing this for eight years, there's nothing about the vaccines that concerns me or my colleagues. You know, I have colleagues that have been working for like 30, 40 years. And same thing. We talk about the history of vaccines. We talk about what we have in the market now and, you know, the vaccines that kids are getting. And it is, there is a large checks and balances that I think many parents don't under, don't really realize is going on, not only between like the CDC and the reporting system for adverse side effects, but also just in our clinical experience
0: let's back up and talk about birth. So women oftentimes feel this kind of unspoken pressure to have a natural birth. Would you share with us a little bit about your personal birthing experience and what you took away from that?
1: Oh, absolutely. So I'm going to be really forthcoming here. I thought that I would have a vaginal delivery, breastfeed my baby, no epidural, I did hypnobirthing. I saw a chiropractor. chiropractor. I saw a massage therapist. I did everything to prepare myself for a quote unquote natural birth. And I'm putting in quotes because of course there's some debate on that, you know, what what is considered natural. But yeah, I was in that boat. I was like, I don't want to have antibiotics if I don't have to have antibiotics. So when I found out my son was GBS negative, I was very happy because I'm like, okay, great. I probably won't need antibiotics. I ended up needing it all. So I needed to be induced. So the Pitocin that I had caused my contractions to be out of control pain. So I ended up getting the epidural. I ended up getting a C section. I ended up needing antibiotics because I was spiking fevers. I ended up formula feeding my baby because of birth trauma. So everything that I had planned didn't go according to plan. And I want to mention that I had the mentality also that this is what I was going to do. I wanted to hire a doula. You know, I am a physician, but I'm really into natural things also, which I think maybe that, that's why when I, when you hear me talking about how I'm so pro vexing, maybe it makes you feel a little bit more secure about, um, you know, coming from someone who is more natural. Um, but I definitely wanted all of that and I didn't get it. You know our experience was very unfortunate. Ryan got stuck in my pelvis during um the c section. They couldn't get him out. It was this big to do you know sixteen months later, I still have very vivid memories of everything that happened um but you know the biggest thing that I remember was after that being so so disappointed that. First, when I had when I realized I had to go in for that C section, I cried. You know, I was like, "Well, I I've been waiting. I'm dilating. Why can't I dilate?" I felt like a failure. I felt like, "Well, why couldn't my I was nine centimeters and not moving?" I was like, "Why? What What could I have done differently?" I really couldn't have done anything differently. In the C section, when they were having me sign the consent forms, I felt sad. I had some of the nurses talk to me and they're like, don't worry, you can try for a B-back. And, you know, I had four C-section babies and they're healthy. And I'm like, I know, I know I see it all the time, but I just had that vision that I would have that vaginal delivery. Um, and then when the trauma happened and Ryan didn't come skin, allow skin to skin for over 12 hours, my breastfeeding journey failed before it even could begin. I didn't have milk supply. I was in the ICU. I couldn't, I was pumping. I was septic. I decided to end my journey because of how sick I was. And I had to make that choice that, hey, I want to try pumping and I want to try breastfeeding, but I also need to heal myself. And if I'm not alive and if I'm not able to take care of my son, then it won't matter if I'm breastfeeding or formula feeding him. So I I realized that the importance comes down to mom's health, mom's mental health. Um, And that was something that was really hard when you had that expectation to begin with.
0: Yeah, that is so, it's so much in terms of these ideas of what, you know, kind of what we think is going to happen when we have a birth and then, you know, what the reality of that, I think that there's just a lot of mental shift in letting go too. Um, There's evidence that babies born by by cesarean miss out on this transfer of essential bacteria from their mother. Is there anything that could be done about that? Or how did you think about that?
1: Yeah. So one of the biggest things that can help with that is obviously breastfeeding can help, right? Because you're introducing some of your immunoglobulins and things like that to the baby afterwards. Um, The other thing is considering things like probiotics. I you know there's a big movement with probiotics. I think it's not harmful. It's something that you do have to clear with your child's pediatrician in terms of you know giving it to the baby. I think if a mother ends up doing a c section, i I think the mother should take probiotics um, to help with their gut flora to also help with the fact that sometimes they do need antibiotics and other medicines, it's no harm in doing it. And then for the baby, it's something to consider. There is going to be a lot more research studies about this, I'm sure, in the next five years because the microbiome and gut flora is such a hot topic. I also want to remind um, families that so much of our health of our babies is also the foods we end up giving them when they start solids. So yes, you are breastfeeding or formula feeding your baby for um, you know six months, a year, and then you're starting. Um, the food and then maybe you're breastfeeding a little bit, obviously after one year. But so much of what we do and give our children in terms of immune health comes from the foods that they eat later in life. Um, so around the six month mark, when you start solids, that has a huge effect on immune system. Um, and so even though a child may have missed out on that, you know, the, the stuff that we get from the vaginal delivery, you know, like the enzymes and the immunoglobulins and everything that comes from the vaginal delivery and coming just through the birth canal, that, that bacteria, the non-sterile environment, there are ways that we can make that better or different as the child gets older. Um, so it's not a one or done. Well, I didn't have a vaginal delivery. So my child's going to be destined for allergies and sickness. You know, my son's 16 months has never had a cold. I didn't breastfeed him. He was a C-section baby. So it kind of goes to show you that it's not all or none here. You know, it, there are other things that we can do to keep our kids quote unquote healthy. And the other component is it's a large part of it is genetics, right? Or we talk about, well, there's so much that comes through the vaginal canal, but a lot of our innate immunity is what our mom's immunity was, what our dad's immunity was. And so I don't want a parent to feel they they really caused harm with their child by needing a C-section, right? Sometimes it's the safest way to get baby out. Sometimes you chose to do formula because it was the best thing for you as a mom. So I really want to really reaffirm your beliefs and say, your child will turn out, amazing. A lot of it is the environment that we live in. A lot of it is genetic. And a lot of it is the foods we eat later in life. So it really is a package deal here. It's looking at what can I do as a mother or father to give the big picture for my child, right? If I didn't breastfeed, fine, I'm going to formula feed, but I'm also going to focus on nutritious foods either way when my child starts solids. So when you look at it from this angle, it's going to really empower parents, I believe, to make the best decision for themselves, but also Make the best decision for your mental health. What you think is best on your resources too, um, because I see so much guilt, and a lot of that guilt is created by social media. A lot of that guilt is created by people who don't understand the middle ground approach that we can take to our children's health.
0: I love that, and you've this is just perfect lead into my next question, which was is talking about homemade versus packaged baby food. Obviously, there mm-hmm. was this you know kind of big report that came out about packaged baby food where where do you come out on, on the making the effort to make homemade, whether that's baby led weaning, you know, pre- preparing some food according to baby led weaning standards or preparing, you know, homemade purees versus packaged baby food?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, I, I'm very respectful of parents' resources and time. So when I give you my answer, please know that I take care, like I said, of a variety of different socioeconomic statuses in my office, okay? Um, So I get it that sometimes I have mothers who are working four jobs. They do not have the time to sit there and make homemade baby food. I will say, though, when you look at it and break it down by time, it's not that much more time. It does maybe require a little bit of more mind space and mental space to plan. But it actually, if you meal plan, homemade food is actually not that much more time consuming because you can just do it the week. You can freeze the food. You can thaw it. You can put it in the fridge. Um, I am a big proponent of homemade baby food. If we can make that happen, um, I, I'll get into what you will look out for if you're buying baby food. But when you home make a, when you home make food, you are looking exactly at what's going into that. Right? You know exactly if you're putting any seasonings in it. You know if you're adding any sugar to it. You know everything that's going into that food process. In terms of store-bought baby food, they are regulating store-bought baby food. That report that came out, you know, was very alarmist and the terminology that they used was a little bit based on fear. Um, And then they it got released into the media and it caused a big uproar. None of the stuff that they mentioned was anything that we did not know. Um, The as a summary for any of our listeners that may not know, they talked about how there's heavy metals in baby food and how there needs to be more tighter regulations. We know that metals exist in food. Why is that plants, right? They grow in the earth. So fruits and vegetables, there are naturally occurring metals that happen in the earth. So of course, you're going to see metals in baby food. If you were to test your own baby food for metals, there's going to be metals if you make it at home because metals exist in our vegetables and our fruits. Now, of course, what we're looking at with that report is that how much of how much of the metals are coming through the manufacturing process. And that's what I think the take home is just to reduce the any additional metals that can come from the uh, manufacturing process, which right now there is no harm or concern that it is to a level that's concerning for our children. What we do want to do as parents is balance the options. Right. So if you are using store bought, I encourage you to try to consider. Um, moving in home-bought baby foods. If you are making your food at home and you just don't have the time and you're tired, it's okay to buy some store-bought baby foods. When we meal planned for our son since he was um, a baby and we started um, baby-led weaning and purees, I really looked at balance. Right, I looked at convenience itemed items. I looked at what can I make and I balanced it. So feeding your child. A jar of spinach that you buy from a grocery store is not going to be good for every single meal. And that goes the same as if you were to make spinach. We don't want to give your child spinach for every meal. And then with the beauty about baby led weaning, we could do a whole other baby led weaning talk, is that... When you start baby led weaning, you are literally giving the child what you eat. When you give the child you eat, you're not panicking about any of the metals or foods that in your food. So we should not matter. It doesn't matter for kids either. So when you start to look at baby led weaning, you're giving your child exactly what you eat, obviously in a texture um, that they can handle. Um, but that is going to give them the nutrients that they need. That is what the family is eating, and that is why I think it's great. You know, when you can start to incorporate your diet with your child's diet too
0: so helpful. And so at Love Every, we talk a lot about the environment and you've, you've touched on this, but the power of the environment and really, you know, just kind of the intention that we bring to our child's experiences, those early experiences as really helping to improve their outcomes. You know, we, there's also genetics. So this is the age old nature nurture question. Where do you land on this? Can you share some thoughts with us?
1: Yes. I love this question. Um, I am a believer that it's a hundred percent Nature and a hundred percent nurture. Uh, so you can't divide it. I mean, our life and our health is so much of both of those things. I am a big nature and nurture researcher, meaning I'm constantly looking at things that are happening in a child. I look at my own experience as a child. I talk to my sister, I talk to my husband, and I'm always looking at things of is this something that was a child's nature or was this something that maybe was in the environment for that child? And like I said, because it's a hundred percent of both, sometimes you won't be able to tease out, well, which one was it? And so I am a big believer that what we put into our bodies is very important, right? And that's why I keep going back to foods and the, you know, water versus sugary drinks, all of this is so important to me, but also the environment that the child's in. I know I'm talking to you and I love, love every, I, I, that is part of the environment, Right. Even if you're not using Love Every Toys, what sort of nurturing environment are you giving your child? The space to have emotions, um, the space to explore, not hovering over them at every moment is so important, in my opinion, for development, you know, allowing them free range to just be able to explore their environment. But you're there with boundaries, you're there if they need you. So all of this is so important. And I love this, because I just think it's, you know, parents often think that, oh, I'm, I'm doing something wrong, you know, I'm parenting my child, and it's not sticking. And I tell them, I'm like, actually, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we need to have boundaries as parents, but we also have to understand that not every child is the same. So it's really important that we understand as parents, what are the different strategies I can do to handle a certain, certain situation? So with sleep, do I want to do sleep training? Does my child need a little more of a gradual approach? Um, with feeding, does my child take easy to purees? Maybe baby led weaning is better. With tantrums, does my kid respond better to timeouts? Do they respond better to more positive parenting? We got to be open to the different styles of parenting, even within our own families, because sometimes one method won't work because you're addressing a child's nature. Um, and so we can't always blame the nurture, vice versa. We can't always pl- blame the na- um, the nature too.
0: Such words of wisdom. Thank you for that. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with parents listening in?
1: I think the biggest thing is always remember that I know that when you are in a decision, let's say, let's bring up the breastfeeding versus formula. I know that when you're making that choice, how hard that choice can be when you had an expectation, especially, right? If you didn't have an expectation or you didn't have any guilt associated, you're not going to have any problem with that decision, right? You're just going to say, okay, formula is great. I'm going to do formula. I didn't have guilt because I know formula fed babies turn out amazing. I didn't have any guilt when I had the C-section after the fact, because I know C-section babies turn out amazing. And, you know, with all of des- the decisions we make as a parent, it's important to own it. It's important to understand that that is your decision and that is your story and run with that, right? Don't think about what everyone else is doing. Look at your child, look at the things that make your family what it is, because in the end, that is going to be the most important thing what makes you happy and what makes your child happy is going to provide the best outcome for you. It's been so
0: wonderful talking to you, Dr. Moni. You're the pediatrician that we all want to have in our communities. (laughs) So so thank you. Thank you for being there for all of us today.
1: So kind. I love it. I'm so happy I got to talk to you, Jess. i love your, your company has done so much for this world and I love your product. So it really is such an honor to connect with you.
0: Get more straightforward parenting and medical advice from Dr. Mona at Talk. As a reminder, Dr. Mona's answers are for the purpose of education only and do not constitute medical advice. If you have a concern about your child's growth or what formula to use, please consult your child's pediatrician. You've been listening to My New Life. If you think this episode might be helpful to a fellow parent, please share. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, head over to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. I'm Jessica Rolfe. Thanks for listening.